Let's get into God's Word tonight. Ephesians chapter 6. I know Pastor Michael ministered to you last Wednesday night, and I'm sure I knew you were in good hands. But we're going to continue in our study about spiritual warfare because I just know there are a lot of people out there in the middle of this right now and many of you know you're in a spiritual battle and some of you are in it and don't know you're in it because you just think it's life. Well, that's just the way life goes. Well, it isn't the way life goes. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as circumstances, especially to a Christian. What happens is there are spiritual forces at work that you can't see. So things happen and things occur that, that we just think, well, that's just, you know, I'm just not a lucky person. Well, it doesn't work that way. There's nothing in the Bible about luck. In fact, the word luck has that at its root the word Lucifer. <laughs> I thought that would get your attention. <laughs> and Lucifer, of course, was one of the archangels, and he's the one that led the rebellion, and he has been renamed as Satan. And so um, luck is kind of in his hands. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and we've been talking about some aspects of this, and I did a whole, we did a whole series uh, about two years ago on the armor of God, and that's really not our intention here, although we're going to touch on some of the pieces of the armor. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, not in your strength, but in His strength. In, be strong, and this is very important, in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the all, whole armor of God, not just some armor you got out of a, you know, from... from QVC or something like that, the armor of God, it's God's own armor, to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, and as a result of that, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having, to done, having done all to stand. And then he's going to tell us how to do it. Stand, therefore, having girded your, lo- your waist, or your loins, the King James says, with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shot or put on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench the fiery darks of the wicked one, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and then he talks about prayer requests for him. So this is, the, this is the, the, the key insight we have into spiritual warfare. We've already seen that the beginning of it is to recognize we're in a spiritual battle. And a spiritual battle means that there are forces at work in your life, in the church, in the world today, that are operating in the spirit realm, which is the realm that you cannot detect, you can't see, you can't feel, you can't hear, unless God does something supernaturally. And the, the, the assumption that we often make, just because that's kind of how we were raised, unless you were raised in a church like this, is that, well, you know, w- w- whatever we see is real. I have a, a, my youngest brother is a scientist, and he, he's, you know, I'm praying for him, and I was even talking with him today about, about our, my faith and what we believe, and he knows what I believe, and, and, and uh, he's more open than he's ever been before, but, but he's a scientist, and he has a, 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 a 
bachelor's degree from MIT and a doctor degree from MIT. And so he's highly educated, he's a scientist, and he's been trained that you go by scientific reasoning and scientific data. And he's saying, it's just hard for me to believe that there's something beyond that. And yet somewhere inside of him, he can sense that's true. Why? Because man was made by God for the purpose of communing with God. God made you, gave you a body... And you have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's your personality. But the real essence of who you are is a spirit being. And nowadays, when postmodernism, you know, the, the, the theory now is that we're, you know, we're just our DNA. But that's not a new theory. There was a, 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 a philosophy a number, about 100 years ago, which basically meant we're twitching meat. In other words, you're, just, you're the combination of, of your nerves and your body and your DNA. And, and just you're, you're a scientific, you can be... Who you are can be scientifically taken apart, and that's all we really are, and that's how they explain it. But that's just not true. There's just something innately in man that rises to something higher, whereas my dog never did. The goldfish we have never aspired to be better goldfish. All right, the dog never, he just wanted his food and his bone and a pat on the head, you know, and to be taken out in the morning and taken out at night. He just wanted to be taken care of, but there's something innately built into man. This isn't my message at all. Something innately built into man that is not satisfied with the status quo, that's always, and that we don't always do, man's not always done it in the best way. In the corporate world, they'll climb over other people, use other people, but there's an ambition in man to get to something better or to be something better. And, and, and without God, we do it in perverse ways, but we still have that ambition. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from twitching meat. It doesn't come from your DNA. It doesn't come from the chemicals in your brain and in your body because there's chemicals in a dog's brain and there's chemicals in a dog's body. It's because you've been made in the image of God. Genesis tells us everything else God made by declaring it. But when it came to man, he didn't make him the same way. God formed man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed his own life into him. And then he formed the woman out of that man and he made him in his image. He didn't make the plants in his image. He didn't make the dogs in his image. That's why God gets so angry when we try to make God into images of animals and, some, and some, some, something other than, than him because he was, they're not the image of God. And so, so there is a spirit realm that is out there that is very real, and in fact, it's more real than your body, and you are a spirit being. And that's the part of you that when you come to Christ, that's what the Bible means by being born again. That's the part of you where the birth, that's the second birth. The first birth was your body. The second birth that has to take place is a rebirth of your spirit and your soul. And they're the part of you that's eternal. And you just live in this house. This is a temporary dwelling. I love that when, Mary, uh, when Marilyn Neubauer was here a number of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and she really helped me because she talked about dealing with symptoms in your body when the Word of God says you're healed and the symptoms say you're not. And the, the, the symptoms are in your body, which is just your house. So it's like coming home and finding there's a broken window in my house. That's not me. My, I'm not broken. It's a broken window in my house. So if there's sickness in your body, you're not sick your house has something wrong with it. And that changes how I see my body and it, and it fits in with what we were talking about on Sunday morning by looking at things in terms of eternity, not this world. This is not your life. This is not your hope. This is not your future. This is a temporary place of assignment for a Christian. 
And so we'll continue talking about that on Sunday. But so the warfare that affects us is not in this natural realm. It affects this realm, but it's not in this realm. And we saw that. And the first thing is to wake up and realize you're in a war because if you don't realize that, you can become a casualty of the war without having the opportunity to fight. And as we go on, we'll find out it's a war that's already been won. We're just in the mopping up part of the exercise. All right. And then we began to look at the... At the, at the uh, at the combatants in the war. It says, verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not that neighbor that's so nasty to you. It's not the circumstances of life. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the things that are in this realm, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. And we looked and established that the Bible teaches us that Satan now, right now, is the god of this world. He's the God of this world because the first God of this world, Adam, turned it over to him. And Jesus has come back as the second Adam to win it back. And he's won victory over Satan's power for those that become in Christ or are born again. But the world itself is still in Satan's domain for now. But that's not forever. Because the Bible tells us Jesus is coming back and he's going to come and establish a thousand year reign a reign, a rulership on this earth, then Satan will be let loose for just a little while and then eventually he's going to be cast into his ultimate place of abode, which is the lake of fire, the burning lake of fire. So you'll find when Satan starts telling you what your destiny is, go to the back of the book and read out loud to him his destiny. He doesn't like to hear that. All right. And you've got to understand, I was raised in a very highly educated, highly intellectual family. I went to law school, I graduated from college, law school, I was a lawyer for 23 years. My training as a scientist training is in, in logic, in reason, in facts. And so some people hear this and say, wow, that's foolishness. I had to struggle with that, but you've you got to decide what is your frame of reference for reality. And I decided at one point, it's this word. And when I looked in this word and saw Jesus talk to the devil, Jesus knew there were demons out there, and the demons talked to Jesus. That's good enough to me to believe they're real. I don't need to see them. I don't talk to them all the time. But they are real, and they'll operate. You don't need to be afraid of them, but you do need to know two things about them. You need to know they're there and operating, and you need to know you've got authority over them. All right. So we've looked at his, his weapons. And, there, and the reason we need to know these weapons are these are the techniques he uses against you. Notice it doesn't say, verse, verse 11, that we may be able to stand against the power of the devil. So many people are afraid of the devil. And he does have power. Don't ever underestimate. He has tremendous spiritual power, but not over you because you're in Christ. Not over unless you give it to him. So against the church, he can't use his power. He has to use tricks or wiles or deceit. And so we looked at what some of those deceits are, some of those tricks are, some of those wiles are. We saw in John 8:44 that he's a liar and the father of lies. So one of his major techniques is he just lies to you. He's not limited to the truth. So don't ever get into an argument with him. Don't get into argument with people that are speaking for him because they're not bound by the truth. And so you'll never win an argument with the devil and you're not called to win an argument with the devil. The first person that tried to do this got this got us into a lot of trouble and it was Eve. She tried to debate with him and reason with him and got us all in trouble. Amen? All right. The second thing we saw was deceit. Over in Revelation chapter 12, we're not going to turn there, but it talks about he's a deceiver. 
and he's the accuser of the brethren. Then the last thing we looked at is doubt. He uses doubt. He tries to work with doubt. That's where we ended up last time. He started in the Garden of Eden, and he got her to doubt the Word of God. He even tried to get Jesus to doubt who he was. So he's very bold. He's very bold because he doesn't care about truth because there's no truth in him. All he wants to do is wear you down and get you to quit. So he'll use any technique he can use to do that, and the basic one he can do is to get you to doubt God's Word and to doubt what God, who God is and what God's love for you and what God's done for you. Because by doing that, he tries to separate you from your strength, separate you from your source of power, separate you from everything. Because notice what it says in the key in the beginning of this whole battle, is finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. So if he can get you to pull away from God. I'm not talking about your salvation. Just try to handle things on your own. Handle things in your strength. Handle things with your reasoning. Handle things with your determination. Handle things by talking to all your friends and getting them together to talk to you and try to help you. If you try to call on man, that's exactly what he wants you to do. Because when you do that, you unplug from God's power and God's strength. And the word of God says that your strength is in him, not in yourself and other people. So he'll try to get you to feel like you're alone. You're the only person that's going through this. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that's come upon man that's not common to man. Satan has nothing new to throw at you. He has no trick or device to throw at you that he hasn't thrown at If we took the time tonight to go through what each one of you are dealing with right now, you'll find there's a very great similarity to it. Because he doesn't have many different tricks. But he's a liar, so he'll tell you you're the only one going through this. You're a unique case. Nobody's ever messed up as badly as you have. Nobody's as poor a Christian as you are because he wants to get you off by yourself because when you're by yourself, you don't have the power of God strengthening you. You're trying to handle him on your own, and you and I are not, you and I are not competent to handle him on our own. Jesus didn't handle him on his own. He answered with the word, it is written. He didn't argue with him. He didn't debate him. He just said, it is written. And that's what we looked up, and that's what we ended up last time. So he uses discouragement. He uses uh, uh, doubt. Um, he tries to. He works with our emotions. This is the concern I have for the church in general in the United States because we're we're so weak in faith. We're so governed by our emotions and governing what's real and what we're like and what God's. Like. I just don't feel close to God tonight. Yeah, but the Bible says He'll never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't say you'll feel He'll never leave you or forsake you. He says He'll never leave you or forsake you. And we've got to learn to base things on what the Word of God says and not how I feel or what you feel together because when we get into the area of emotions and feelings, we're in His arena. We're in Satan's arena. And there are emotions that are good. We cannot be ruled by them. So he works with our emotions. He works with our mind by, playing, by giving, planning thoughts in your mind, which is why we, it's so important that we renew our mind to the Word of God because when you get these thoughts, they don't line up with the Word of God, immediately you reject them. Immediately you reject them. All right. And the systems of this world because they, it's just to kind of wear our down. And what I really sense in my spirit and what I really see as I talk to people in the church and other Christians and other pastors, I just, I just sense that he's just trying to wear people down. It's not even, you know, one 
frontal attack. It's just wearing people down, getting weary and well-doing and getting weary and well-doing. And it's not, I'm not seeing answers to prayer. I'm not seeing this. I'm not this. And just, oh, I don't know if I can hold out much longer. That's his device. That's his device. Because we start entertaining those thoughts and then we start having those feelings. I taught you when we studied a while ago renewing the mind. Your emotions come from your thoughts. So if you change your thoughts, you'll change your emotions. Your emotions don't tell you what the truth is. Your emotions are determined by what you've been thinking about. So if you change your thinking, that's why Satan tries to plant thoughts in your mind because then the emotions will come and if we don't understand this, we become overcome by those emotions and then we become ruled by those emotions and then we, just, then we start giving up. Sometimes people just give up all at once, but usually it's in stages. It's in stages, and you can begin to see it in their activity. And, and one of the ways is you see that they stop praying regularly, they stop reading their Bible regularly, because the thought, well, what good's it doing? I don't see what good's it doing. Well, first of all, we shouldn't read our Bible because it's doing some good. It does do good, but I don't read my Bible for what I get out of it. I read it because it strengthens me. I read it because it's something that gives me greater knowledge of God. And, well, I don't, you know, I'm just, you know, my, I'm not getting my prayers answered, and so, but, 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 how do I know my prayers aren't answered? Just because I don't see them yet doesn't mean the answer is not this far away. And often the greatest pressure comes right before the greatest victory. And that's the sense I have. I just sense that he knows his time is short, that there's some wonderful things that are about to happen. Here and in other churches, there's some wonderful things that are about to happen. And so he's increasing his pressure just to get people, if he can't get them to quit, then just to back away, just to get intimidated, just to get discouraged, begin to kind of drag our feet. When God's a God of victory, he's not a God of just getting there. He's not a God of survival. He's a God of victory. Jesus didn't survive the cross. He overcame Satan with the cross. And it's interesting because sometimes in your life, this isn't what I was, sometimes, listen carefully, sometimes that what looks like a defeat in your life is actually a turning point for victory. I think I'll say that again. Sometimes what looks like a defeat in your life is actually a turning point for victory. Remember nowadays, you know, you know, we use DVDs and things like that. But remember the, the home movies that, that was, was you pulled up the, the, you know, I've got some old ones. You hold it up and it's a series of little pictures. You know, anybody remember those? All right. And, and, but, it, but those pictures, each picture frame shows a slight movement that's different from the frame before. And when you run it through at the right speed through the projector, you see movement like this. But there's no actual movement because it's a film. It's a series of pictures. But if you take one of those frames out of a movie that's an hour and a half and you look at that frame, that doesn't tell you the whole movie, does it? That's just one frame in a movie. Well, one day in your life is one frame in your journey. One experience, one incident that you go through, it may be just one frame and you don't know what the next frames are. You don't know what the end of the movie is yet. But Satan will take that one frame and talk to you about that one frame and he'll tell you, look, you're a failure. You're not getting anywhere. You're not succeeding with God. Look, 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 look. See? And I've learned now, yeah, but I want to see the end of the movie. Let's look at the end of the movie. That's just one frame. That's just one frame. The greatest example of that is the cross. Because on that Friday, when he hung on that cross, 
to all of his disciples, it looked like total defeat. To all, in fact, most of them gave up and went back home. John was the only one there, and he was there, I think, because he just was trying to take care of, of Jesus' mother. But, but the rest of them gave up. Why? It was total defeat on Friday, morning, Friday afternoon. Total defeat. And for their enemies, it looked like total victory. Saturday is still like total defeat. Nothing was happening. Oh, but Sunday morning. Oh, but Sunday morning. Oh, but Sunday morning. Sunday morning. It not only all turned around, but it didn't just bring him back to life so that he was back where he was Thursday night. It defeated the power of Satan and changed your eternal life from what was defeat turned into something into a victory. And I have a word from God for some of you tonight. Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. And when Sunday's coming, it's not a reversal of Friday. When Sunday's coming, it's the breakthrough and it's the victory. It's the breakthrough and the victory. But they all had to go through a form of death. He went through literal death. They had to go through death to the vision. They had to go through death to their hope. They had to go through death to everything they'd put their hope and trust in. But see, God hadn't let go of them. It felt like God had abandoned them. It felt like Jesus had abandoned them. It felt like it was over. It felt like their dreams, everything. Remember, they didn't just go to church with him. They left everything. They left everything. And their homes, their family, and I'm sure they had people at home that didn't understand them. I'm sure they had relatives that were mad at them, thought they were crazy for following this, this, this extremist out there. They'd given it all up to follow him, and now it looked like for what? Amen. I'm sure when they went back home, Uncle Joe and Aunt Tilly were telling them, See? See? I told you so. But Sunday morning was coming. Sunday morning was coming. Sunday morning was coming. The victory was coming. Because although they let go of God, God never let go of them. Although they may have given up on the dream and the plan, God never gave up on them. And God will never give up on you. What God's put in you, the dream that God's put in you to do something for Him, the vision, the call that God's put in you, don't ever, God will never give up on it. You may be at discouraged, you, but those are the times of testing. Those are the times where God works things in you. Those are the strengthening times when you find out, I can't maybe trust people around me, but God's always there. Jesus at one point said, turned to his disciples and said, yes, yes, you, not, you ought to be strengthening me. I'm the one that's going to go through this. He says, but don't worry about me. My father strengthened me. Paul at one point wrote to Timothy and said, all of those that were with me, they've all walked away, but God, Jesus, my Lord, stood with me. So whatever falls apart in your life, whatever looks like it's not working, God's going to be there with you. Jesus is going to be there with you. The Spirit of God's in you because He's promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. But sometimes you've got to go through what looks like death in order to experience new life. I mean, we live, in a, we live in, a, in, in a climate where we go through that every year. My grass is looking like it's dying now. The leaves are falling off the trees, and things just look dead. They look, all, they look gone. They look like there's no life in them. 
But we all know. See, I don't panic about that. I say, oh my goodness, the leaves have fallen off all my trees. Call out the tree specialist. My goodness. What imagine if I did that? I called out some tree specialist and I, well, what's wrong? What's the matter? The leaves, they're falling off the trees. And he's going to look at me like, how long have you lived here? <laughs> Those leaves have to come off. That tree has to go through a time of dormancy and a form of death. Why? Because it's a preparation for new life that comes next spring. It's a preparation for new life. So we don't judge whether that tree's healthy. We don't ju- I can't judge what my lawn's like or a garden's like by what things look like in November or December or January. So uh, this, is, this is the Spirit of God talking to us tonight. What looks like death... What looks like death is very often God's opportunity. I've got a book somebody gave me, actually Lafayette Scales a number of years ago, and it's called Pivotal Prayers, and it's a story of people's lives that were serving God, and they, they had a dream and a vision for something. And when they came to the point of it, it fell apart, and they thought God had abandoned them. And it turned around. One was a young man who, who his passion was to serve God as a missionary. He wanted to serve God. So all his life, you know, what a great dream to serve God as a missionary. Fell in love with this woman, beautiful young woman who loved the Lord and she wanted to go on the mission field and they belonged to a denomination where you had to go through a series of testing and training. They went through all of this and they're ready to go and they pulled him in and at the last minute they said, we're not going to send you. He said, why? He said, we just, your wife's health is just too fragile. We don't want to be responsible. So you're going to have to stay here. And he was devastated. He thought, what have I done wrong, God, that you've, you've turned your back on me? I mean, it's not like I want to go build something for myself. I want to do something for you. What, how come? God, and he went through this dark time of, of just despair. God, what's wrong? So he didn't know what else to do, so he just joined his father, who was a dentist, and just started working for his father and helping his father. And his father had a little garden, a little side thing, uh, thing on the side, and, you know, the, the son began to spend more time in it. And finally the father, I don't remember, retired or died, and the son took over the practice, but he didn't, he just really, you know, he wasn't a dentist in his nature. He just wanted to do something for God. So he took this little side endeavor that they had, and he began to develop it. And he had a... He had a, a, a like a vineyard where he grew grapes. And uh, so he began to, to turn this grapes into juice and then began to sell it, and people liked it and became more and more popular to the point where he stopped being a dentist and started a little company called Welch's, which, by the way, is the largest source of communion juice used in churches. Here's a man whose d- passionate heart's desire was to serve the Lord, and he had a way of what he wanted to do, and it didn't work. And God turned his life around and used him for a purpose that was far more blessing and satisfying than, than, than he could ever have imagined. But to get there sometimes, you've got to go through the death process. You've got to go through the process where it looks like it's dying, where it looks like nothing's happening, and you feel like God's abandoned you. Where is he? I don't hear from him anymore. I don't know what's going on right now. Know this, that God never lets go of you. God never lets go of you. But Satan wants to use those opportunities to get you to let go of God and to give up on God and discourage you. 
And so that is his device. Well, what we're going to look at tonight is, uh, that's just the introduction. We're going to look at tonight, <laughs> we're going to begin to look at God's weapons because he tells us he's given us weapons in this battle. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I needed to hear that tonight, so I'm glad I came. (laughs) Okay. Verse, um, let's go to verse 2. I beg you that when I'm present, that I may not, not, not be bold with that confidence by which I intended to be bold against some of you, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, that's in our body, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of the flesh or of our body or of our own strength, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments or imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Satan's number one goal in his warfare against you is to interfere with your knowledge of God. When the garden, what he attacked was their knowledge of God, to get them to doubt what God was like, to doubt the character of God, to doubt that God cared about them, to doubt doubt God's word, to doubt things about God, because he knows that if our confidence is in God and not in ourselves, that that's going to allow God to work in our lives, not just in our lives, but through us and affect the lives of other people. So that's what threatens him. So he has to, his whole goal is to, is, to, is to convince you things about God so that you don't know what God's really like. That's why Satan's behind religion. I'm uncareful. If you don't understand what I've said before, religion is man's idea of who God is and how to reach him. And, and there, there are a whole series of ways man practices that. And some of you have come out of denominations that were steeped in religion. And that can filter in to charismatic churches and word of faith churches. It can filter into our lives. Religion is things, is practices that we develop that we put our confidence in that are going to either make God happy or get something from God instead of responding to who God is. Christianity is a relationship with God. Religion's not a relationship with God. It's a series of rules and regulations and procedures and practices that we put our confidence in that get God to bring, bring us closer to God or get God to work in our lives. It's all trusting in something we're doing, something we've established, but it interferes with relationship instead of enhancing relationship. And so anything that makes the knowledge of who God really is and a real relationship with Him, anything that interferes with that is what Satan is after. And so what these strongholds are, are strongholds are everything in arguments or in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God that stands between us and knowing what God is like. In fact, keep your finger there and go back to chapter 4. Verse 3, but if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Whose minds, 
the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light or the truth of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is the one that is blinding unbelievers' eyes so that they cannot see the truth that you see. It's amazing because I sat, when I was in the last law firm I worked in, I worked with a number of Jewish lawyers, and one of them was a very devout Jew, a very serious Jew, and the synagogue that he belonged to was an Orthodox synagogue, and, and, uh, and he attended what he called a Torah study, which was what we call a Bible study. And the, the, the rabbi, during the week, would hold a little, you know, you bring a, your, your lunch to this office, and you'd sit in a conference room, and, and the rabbi would do kind of a rabbinical teaching with you. Uh, and of course, it's all out of the one of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so I went, I was invited to go, and I thought I'd just go out of curiosity. And I went and I listened, and it was the most amazing thing because I was very conscious of this verse. Because this whole section of Scripture talks about how, how uh, for Israel, there's still a veil over their eyes as there was over Moses when he would come down off the mountain. And, and that, 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 that veil is removed in Christ. You can see clearly when Christ comes into you, because when you, when you give your life to Christ, then the Spirit of God comes into you, and he's the, one that, he's the author of the book. I mean... Before I was saved, I was reading this Bible every night. I was hungry. I was trying to find God. And I was reading this Bible, and I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Now, I'm not the swiftest light bulb in the box, but I've, you know, I've, I've, I've got a doctorate from a law school. So I've learned to read, and I could read the Internal Revenue Code at that time. I'm not sure I could understand it now. But I could actually understand the Internal Revenue Code. And I couldn't understand this. It was contradictory. It was all these things... But the, the moment the Spirit of God came into me, it became alive. I couldn't put it down. It began to... And not because I was not... It was speaking to me. I had to shut it off, and I would, couldn't wait to get up and read my... I was sneaking my Bible, reading my Bible, not because people wouldn't see me. I was sneaking it when I should be doing something else because I had to have it. Why? It was talking to me. Now, I didn't suddenly become intelligent overnight. I didn't come, suddenly become a theological genius overnight. What happened is the author of the book moved inside of me. The author of the book moved inside of me. The, the Spirit of God who breathed these words into Isaiah and breathed these words into Ezekiel, into Matthew and Mark and into Luke and into Peter, he breathed these words into them. It's the God-inspired word, which means God-breathed word. That same Spirit's now in me, connecting me to, yes, 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 I see it, I see it. And you know what? 34 years later, it still happens to me. I was reading something this morning. Wow, I've never seen that. I can't tell you the hundreds of times I'd preached that verse. And nobody got in there and put new words in there. It's pregnant. It's alive. And that's what it says about itself. It's alive. It's active. It's more powerful. Sharper than a two-edged sword. I've forgotten what the point was. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is, 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 and so Satan is the one that blinds their eyes, confuses them, because if they ever can see this, they'll act on it. So he has to keep them distracted. He has to keep them. So he's exalting himself. He's exalting. He's lifting ideas up and concepts up and principles up and, and experiences up in people's minds and, and, and to keep them from seeing the truth. 
But aren't you glad we can pray? Aren't you glad we can pray? Aren't you glad we can pray? And we can, you know, what your prayers will do, your prayers will distract the demons that are distracting your brother, your sister, your aunt, your neighbor. You can distract those demons by praying the Word of God over those people. And it confuses them. All right. So the weapons, what I want to show you here, back to verse 4. The weapons of our warfare, so the weapons we have, the weapons Satan has to use are wiles, devices, trickery, lying, doubt. There's no power in those unless we pay attention to them. But the weapons of our warfare are mighty. They're not carnal. Carnal just means of our flesh. And here's why so many Christians struggle, because they try to fight spiritual warfare with carnal weapons. They get angry, they get frustrated. All those emotions are carnal weapons. Or we we call up people and say, you know, this is happening to me, I don't know what to do, and we shoot our mouth off and complain, feel sorry for ourselves, and we invite other people to the pity party, and they bring their cookies and goodies, and we just have a wonderful pity party, just having, and you know, there's a thing about pity that feels good, to our flesh. Oh, you know. And you just kind of want to rub up against somebody else that's going through a difficult time, you know. Oh, you know, on you. But, you know, and you ever get into one of these conversations, and I'm sure we all have, where you're topping each other's trouble, you know? Yeah, well, I went th- I'm going through something even harder than that. You think that's bad? You ought to hear what I'm going through. And we have no real, we don't realize what we're doing. What we're looking for is we're looking for comfort by knowing somebody else is going through something like this too. And the real comfort is, my mess is worse than yours. So you ought to feel sorry for me instead of me getting to feel sorry for you. The problem with that is that empowers our enemy. We're, we're fighting with weapons that are his weapons. We're putting bullets in his gun. We're cocking the, 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 the revolver and we're showing him where to aim, where the most vulnerable part to aim. We're saying, here, just put an X right here. You know, if that happens one more time, I'm going to quit. Somebody marks that down. I can't stand that. Oh, really? Let's put that one down. That's what they can't stand. Satan doesn't have to be able to look inside of you. He just has to listen. He just has to listen, and we give him clues. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So we have, and look what they are, but they're mighty in God. So we've been given weapons from God that are empowered by him. They have the power of God over our enemy. And last time we talked briefly about this, we talked a little bit about the war that went on in heaven that went on in the spirit, spirit realm, where Satan convinced a third of the demons, I mean, a third of the angels. So don't tell me he's not crafty. Don't tell me he can't use deceit. He conned a third of the angels into following him in rebellion. But Jesus said, I watched the battle, and I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So I don't believe it was a very long war. He was cast down to this earth and he fell like a bolt of lightning. And you know how fast a bolt of lightning. Ever try to take a picture of a lightning bolt? You know, and it's, it's not there. 
because the lightning bolt happened before I could push the button on the camera or now it's on your phone or something like that. We were at a, at a family event in Texas a few years ago and standing on the balcony of the house we were staying in out over the, the beautiful the, 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 uh, the ocean uh, in southern Texas and there was a gorgeous electrical storm. I love those. I love thunderstorms and electrical storms. I love to, you know, just the power of that thunder just does something for me. I just, some of you, I know it scares you. I just love to feel that power. I can just imagine God's voice speaking. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. you know. <clears throat> and these lightning bolts and I have this nice digital camera and I'm out there. I want to get these things. And every time I take the picture, by the time I push the shutter, the lightning was gone. And one of the young people next to me had, you know, an iPad, t- and he, he could get it immediately. Why? There was no mechanical shutter to push. But th- in the second it took, or split second it took, to push that shutter, the lightning bolt had fallen. It was over. That's how fast a lightning bolt falls. And so God's power exerted against Satan took that long to work. And that's the power that's available to us in the weapons that God's given to us. The problem is we don't usually fight with those weapons. We fight with weapons, the Bible says, that aren't powerful enough to win. So the weapons of our warfare are not of our flesh, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin to look at these tonight. We're not going to spend the same amount of time that we did last time on these. Because, it's, again, the purpose of this is not to analyze these. Ephesians chapter 6. There we go. There's two types of weapons that are listed in here. Most of it is what's called the armor of God. Armor has a defensive purpose, a protective purpose. We're going to see there's a, there's a belt that's worn. We're going to see there's a breastplate that's worn. We're going to see there's a helmet that's worn. We're going to see that there's shoes that are to be put on. And we're going to see that there's a shield. Those are protective. And actually, the shield's not part of the armor. The armor is something that's put on the body to protect the body. Why? Because in the course of battle, you want to be sure, first of all, that you're not going to be injured. Before you go after your enemy to harm your enemy, you want to be sure that you're protected because it doesn't do any good to go after the enemy if all he's got to do is stick his sword out and stick you. So the first purpose of this armor is to make sure that in this spiritual warfare that you're protected because you're fighting an enemy you can't see. You're fighting an enemy that's using weapons that you can't see with your senses. You can feel the effects of them, but you can't see them with your senses. So we need to, because we know ahead of time where those weapons are going to try to strike, the Bible says that God has given us armor to protect those weapons so that when Satan tries to attack us with his devices, we're protected. And the key here uh, of understanding this armor, because I've known people, you know, they get up in the morning and they put on their breastplate and they act it out and they put on their helmet, you know, and they put on their shoes and they put... And that's okay if it's reminding you of something. But, but this is the key to it. And this is what I saw the last time we did this study. Finally, my brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord, not in your armor. Be strong in the Lord. Not with him, in him, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor 
of God. Not put on the armor God's given you out of his warehouse, but put God's armor on. Be strong in the Lord. Just like I'm in this jacket, be strong inside of the Lord. Psalm 91 says, talks about the secret place who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. The secret place of the Most High is in Him. And if you're in Him, He's your protection. If you're in Him, He's your strength. Satan's dealt with Him before. He doesn't want to mess with Him. So why be outside of Him handling this when you can be in Him and then God handles Him? Be strong inside the Lord. Be strong within Him. And so the armor of God is putting God on. It's putting God on you. It's not putting on material that God gave you to protect you. It's clothing yourself in Him. Then He's your protection. He's your strength. And you'll see that as we begin to go through this. We'll just get started with it. The first one is truth. Verse 4, 14. Stand therefore, having girded or put around your waist the belt of truth. Having girded your waist or with truth or the belt of truth. Some translations say the sash of truth. It's interesting that truth is the first thing. Psalm 33 Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. For the word of the Lord is right, or true, and all of his works are done in truth. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his goodness. 1 John chapter 1 says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's turn over there. 1 John 1, verse 5. And this is the message that we've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. That represents truth. Because think about, what is truth? Truth is seeing what's really there. Truth is being able to see what's really there. So when someone tells you the truth, they're telling you what's really going on. And so light is what allows you to see the truth, to see what's really there. When you came in here tonight, you knew immediately that something was different because the lights were on. You could tell that the banisters were down and that, 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 that the, some of the things that we've had, the plants and things that were always up here, you knew something was different. Why? Because you could see that they were not there. And that's the truth. They're not there. But that's true because the light was on. But if you walked in here in darkness, you wouldn't know whether those things were up there or not. Even though they're not there, you wouldn't know that because you couldn't see that they were not there because the, there was no light to see it. And that's true spiritually. So light here means the ability to see spiritual things accurately. So if we 
This is the message we heard from him and declare to you that God is light. We just read in Psalm 33 that he is, everything he does is in truth. God is truth. So if, his, if, it's, if we're putting him on, the essence of everything God is is truth. So there cannot be anything about what we're doing that's not truth. And this is one of the key things I've learned. Because remember, Satan works in darkness. He works in shadows. He works in deceit, which is the suggestion of something, the, the, the inclination of something. The, you know, he, he doesn't work in total darkness because he wants to hint things to you. H-I-N-T, hint things to you, suggest things to you. So that he can get you to worry about it. So he'll tell you just part of something, but not the whole thing. So the doctor called. You get a message from the doctor 5 o'clock on Friday saying, you know, you had your test yesterday. I need to see you first thing Monday morning. That's not a lot of information, but he'll take that and begin to work in your mind and begin to expand that and create a picture in your mind of what are you going to be told? What's all that going to mean? And before I learned to control my mind and, and discipline my mind, I, would, I had to happen to me once. And by the time Monday morning came, I saw myself in the hospital with tubes coming out of me. And all it was is they lost the test and wanted to do it again. But I didn't know that. But he works in that area of fears, in the area of suggestion and just shadows. God works in truth. In fact, the Greek word for truth is a word that means nothing hidden. Nothing hidden. Everything open. What you see is what you get. And God is truth. Therefore, in order to work in God and work with God, in order to put God on, we have to walk in truth. And that's where it gets tricky. I'm not just talking about telling truth to other people. We deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves more than we lie to other people. We make excuses for things that we just know are wrong. We make excuses for ourselves for things we don't give other people that room to make excuse for. And, we, we, just, we, we, and so when we come to God, when we come to God in, in, in a battle or under pressure, we'll come to Him and try to present the best case. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and I was saying, you know, what you need to tell, you know, they're mad at God about something. I said, you need to tell God you're mad at him. I don't want to do that. I said, do you think he doesn't know? Yes. Oh, no, I know what it was. There was something they think God wants them to do they don't want to do. And they said, I, I don't know how to get out of it. I said, the way you get out of it is you talk to God about it. Just talk to him about it. I said, he does know you don't want to do it. That's how you found out you don't want to do it, is he showed you that you don't want to do it. And they said, but I don't want to admit to him that I don't want to do it. Now, let's think it carefully. They know they don't want to do it. They know God knows they don't want to do it, but they don't want to admit out loud to Him that they don't want it. Because the moment they admit it out loud, they now know they've got to change. And they want to live in that little gray area where I know I'm wrong, but I don't want to, be resp- I don't want to, I don't want to stop being wrong. I'll admit, and this is the difference between... And this is where so many, so many times I've been. There's a difference between repenting and admitting to your sin. Admitting your sin is saying, God, I did it. Repenting is saying, God, not only did it, I don't want to do it again. And I'll do everything I can with your help to not do it again. I'm Because the word repent literally means to turn around. 
It means to turn around. Sorry means I've stopped where I am. I wish I hadn't done it, but I'm still not determined I'm not going to go in that direction still. And, be, and, and that's why when you speak the words out to God, you now become accountable for them. And this person didn't want to take that step. And so what they were doing is they were fooling themselves. You following me? And God only deals in truth. So in order, God wants to come to where you are, wherever it is. He can, help, he can handle where you are, but in order for Him to come to where you are, you've got to admit where you are. You've got to face where you are. And some, many times we try to pretend we're someone we're not, and God won't come to where you're pretending. He'll come to where you are. The problem is when I'm trying to pretend I'm somewhere, and I'm not even talking about you know, impressing people. I'm talking about just not being honest within my heart about where I am. I remember one time, just on my knees, just crying out to God. I was really, I was, I was so spiritual. I was just pouring my heart out to God. God, I really want to do that. I really want to obey you. I want to, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it, Lord. I want to do everything you want me to do. And I heard these words so clearly, then why don't you do it? I, there was nothing left to say. I'm not going to argue with him. And I suddenly saw it. I felt better about myself because I was I really I was expressing my intentions to God and God was trying to show me you're using your intentions as a substitute for obedience now he said I can deal with your disobedience what I can't deal with if you think your intentions are good enough to replace obedience and so we need to be honest with ourselves and, of course, honest with each other. And then, because when we're covering, when we're shading things, when we're not facing things, we've created a shadow in our hearts. And that's the area where Satan begins to work his deception. He'll take those places of opportunity. You see, you don't have to be afraid of God. He loves you. You don't have to be afraid of facing the truth before him. There's scriptures that talk about, you know, coming before God with whom we have to do. That's comforting to me. I want to be able to stand before a God who can see everything in me because I don't, I don't fully trust myself yet. And don't look at me that way. You don't trust yourself either. And I don't trust you either any more than I trust me because I know what my flesh is capable of doing if I'm not walking in that right place with Him. It makes me dependent upon Him. And so the first thing is truth. We've got to be walking in truth with God and with ourselves. And I'll close with this. Often when people find themselves stuck spiritually and they say, I, you know, I'm just stuck. I can't, I don't know how to get out of where I am. I just seem to be going in circles. I don't know what God, I can't hear from God. And I'll often say, you know, what you just need to do is just get honest with God about where you are. And stop trying to pretend that you're somewhere or you're something you just, you know, hey, God, I, there's times I've told God I want to quit. There's times I've told God, I just, I, this is where I am. He knows where I am. And he can handle that. And he'll come there with his grace and his mercy and his love. So the beginning of putting God on is walking in truth. Truth with others, truth with God, and most importantly, truth with ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you for encouraging us. We thank you for challenging us. And just help us, Father, as we learn to put you on. As we learn to put you on, and the first we've learned tonight is truth. Help us to just be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest with you. And help us to be honest with one another.
And we thank you for the grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.